Rugby Coach Weekly Podcasts presents Coaching Laid Bare with Lisa Bird Burgess and LJ Lewis. Welcome to the Coaching Laid Bear Pod. This week, LJ and I are delighted to welcome one of my heroines in the game. Um, you know, she's been around ever since I've been starting to play rugby and achieved so much in the game and is still achieving. And we're, we're delighted to welcome um, Carol Isherwood um, to the pod. Carol, how are you doing? How's it uh, going there? In hi, Bert. Um, fine, thank you. Lovely to be here with, with you and LJ today. So, yeah, looking forward to having a chat. We're, we're just delighted. And Alge, I can see Alge grinning from um, cheek to cheek there. <laughs> Alge, morning, <laughs> hey, Alge. How's it hey. going? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you guys? You okay? All good. All good, thank you. I just, want to, I just want to tell you guys just a little bit about Carol Isherwood. She, you know, Carol Isherwood, OBE, just uh, what an amazing woman she really is. And, and I, I had the pleasure of um, knowing Ish back way back in the 1980s when um, she first set up a team at Leeds University. And we're going to explore all that. But just to give you a little flavour of, of what she's done, really, you know, she captained the Great Britain women's team in the inaugural game versus France. Um, you know, I have many happy memories of that day. Um, the founder member of the Women's Rugby Football Union. Um, captain of England um, in their first international game against Wales, of which I know well because we played against her there. Again, um, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Many happies of that Pontypool Park day. Love that. Um, <laughs> you know, she's had a variety of coaching roles from youth, women's premiership, regional, divisional and England emerging in the national squad. First woman to achieve the RFU Level 3 Coaching Award. Performance Director of the RFUW. Awarded an OBE for services to women's rugby. World Rugby Personality of the Year in 2008. Um, Hall of Fame, one of the first six women to be inducted into the Rugby Hall of Fame. Um, RFU Board Member, RFU Women's Integration Board Member. The Women's Sports Trust Award for Outstanding Contribution to Women's Sport in 2018. And is currently the consultant, uh, consultant to World Rugby for the Women in High Performance Coaching Programme, of which myself and LJ uh, are part of. And, we're, you know, just honestly, the work... It's just done and, like I say, continues to do a, a huge, massive inspiration, an incredibly mod modest woman and, and certainly one of my heroines, like I said. So, Ish, I know you'll absolutely be cringing and hating everything I'm saying here, but, but thank I'm you. I'm so glad it's not on camera. <laughs> Actually, I haven't told you that. No. <laughs> yeah. but, but honestly, what you've achieved is just phenomenal. And, and I know you don't often give interviews. So, LJ and I, uh, and I are delighted with this scoop to actually get time to talk to you and find out about all your wonderful stories and, and what you're doing for the game. So thanks. Alge, Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Alge, how are we doing? Can't, I can't bet you can't yeah. wait to get chatting in there. Yeah, no, I'm very excited about today. Not only do I have the pleasure of working with you, Bird, all the time, today <laughs> I've got two legends of the game to, um, you know, grill and hear, hear fantastic stories from. So yeah, no, very excited and also really looking forward to talking a little bit about kind of where Carol wants to see the, the coaching go in and stuff like that, I, you know, especially because myself and Bird, we know what's what what we've been experiencing has been really great. So, yeah, yeah, there's lots to get through, Bird, hey? Absolutely. Let's get on with it then. So, Ish, take us back to 1981 when you first set up a women's team at Leeds University. Um, you know, what was it like to be a women's rugby player back then and how hard was it set up and get people to take women's rugby seriously? 
Yeah, um, thank, thank you, Bird, and thanks for that, that introduction. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, it's really, it's really interesting when I look back to 1981 and think about, think about the game then. There, there wasn't, you know, I was desperate to play rugby when I was a kid and wasn't allowed to. Wasn't, you know, I wanted to play football, rugby, cricket with the boys and you weren't <laughs> allowed to. Um, so uh, one, one year I went hot picking one summer when I was at the university and met met somebody at, at, from Sheffield University, Christine Kenrick, uh, who ended up helping set up the Sale women's team. Um, and she played rugby. So I was like, oh, blimey, this, this sounds great. I went down and played a game for Sheffield. Would you believe I got shoved in the second row? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Did they give you platform shoes? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I sort of managed. And uh, anyway, so when I got back to Leeds, I thought, right, that's it. I'm setting up a team. Um, and I had some mates I played a bit five-a-side football with, a couple I was doing judo with. And uh, and I put a notice on, on the men's, well, what the rugby union notice board in the student union. And it was it was amazing. I got loads of people signing out, loads of women signing up, but also two of the rugby lads put a note on going, we'll help coach you if you like. And honestly, yeah. um, those those two guys were brilliant and, and ended up coaching us for a long time and, and for all the right reasons, can I say as well. Um, so in a way it was sort of, it was easy, you know, because people were interested and wanted to have a go. So we'd go and train at lunchtime out on the Hyde Park. Um, and then we, we were trying to find out who had teams and somebody in our team knew somebody at York University, which is which was um the York, the York coach, which was Simon Crabb, who ended up coaching. Oh, wow. um, and uh, we set up a we set up a game against them and had our first ever game against York and then against Hull University. And then we came to the Loughborough tournament. Uh, so that was our first sort of season, if you like, just to even be able to to get out there and play. And and uh, we had some good athletic people. So actually, we were, we were, we were pretty good from the start, although you know, we were the shortest team around for a long time. I think, you know, <laughs> after after starting in various, but I mean, I did start in the front row, and then they moved me further back because my my hands. They said my hands were too good, and I needed to get out and be involved in the game more. But yeah, that was <laughs> that was when the two the two lads, Ian and and Mark, were just brilliant in terms of supporting us and and um, helping helping us set the game up at Leeds and and get our fixtures and and develop the game there. Because there wasn't any real structure then in terms of, you know, it was a case of ringing up around who's playing, can we have a friendly against you? I mean, things like insurance, travel, there wasn't any of that, was there? It was just like, what kind of kit did you wear? Things like that, you know, just so people well, can get a flavour. Yeah, I think we were just, you know, Ian sorted out borrowing the, the men's kit, which was probably still wet and stinky from the day before. Um, I, can't even, I can't even really remember that. Oh, we have to buy some short, oh, rugby boots. So we all went off buying rugby boots and stuff. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, and you know, you'd we'd borrow the union minibus or whatever. That's yeah. what I remember. Um, <laughs> and and off we go. And yeah, you go, you would talk talk to the, the the women at York, and actually, a lot of the York women were the ones that, with some of the Leeds women and UCL, ended up setting up Finchley, and then Richmond. So that's where that's where it, that, that started. Um, so know, so 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 the kind of it was in university rugby before the actual clubs were set up or were, were absolutely there... the only the only club side was was Magor, uh, Magor Maidens in, in Wales, in, yes, Wales, in Welsh <laughs> Wales, um, and so they you know so they were ahead of the game because it was actually in a in a in a rugby club. It, it was, and I guess the one thing we all thought was, 
we've got to hang on to this for as long as we can in terms of playing at, at the university because once we left, we won't be able to play. Um, but what we all did was say, well, actually, we're not prepared to give up. So that's when we started knocking on people's doors and saying, uh, actually, we'd like to set up a women's team here. We've got five or six of us and, and we'll do some fundraising, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what happened as, as the women left the university wanted to carry on. We, they started to um, hound <laughs> men's rugby clubs and, and, and um, become part of their rugby club and, and set up women's sections. So, you know, you must have had an incredible group of women there that, that went on. Can you just give us a little flick? So you, where did you, you actually went to, to London, didn't you, after you'd been at university? Yeah, so right? there's a few years there in, in between. So set up the, the team at Leeds and then I think it would have been that second season then that UCL came up and played a game and stayed overnight. <gasps> Carnage in the, <laughs> in, the <laughs> in, in, in the pub. Um the, the guys had to leave because we were doing songs that stopped the shows. So they were like, oh, no, <laughs> we haven't to listen to any more Oliver. I'm out of here. Um, so we had a fantastic night with them. That's when I met people like, like Debs Griffin, Kate Hindle, um, wow. Sheila Welsh, Barry Welsh. Um, and so when we were looking at it, thinking about the game, and, and this is where you got news that, oh, Loughborough have a tournament. You need to go to that. And that's that's what we'd done the year before. Um we we looked at setting up a governing body and that's that's what we decided we decided to to we had to do so that's where it started to be discussed around well how do we get a better structure how maybe we do need to look at insurance how do we have a competitive structure um and you know so so for me one of the drivers was don't just want to play friendlies we want some sort of tournament so we know who the best team is so we were already starting to get there with that sort of thinking around the game um and that's when we a small group of us from a, a number of different sides and a few of us who'd been on a rugby tour with ostensibly UCL we ended up with about six six teams being six universities being represented um when we decided to look at having that first meeting we just wrote to whoever we knew was playing and said right we're going to have a, a talk about how we take this forward and that's when we had that first ever ever meeting in the the bloomsbury theater um complex in in um in houston um and wow. so can you tell us first. about that meeting tell us about that meeting so who, how many people attended it and what, what was what was the outcome I can't remember how many attended, but we had, we had a... Come on, Ish. Yes, one, you can. One or two <laughs> from it. I'm going to have to go back through the archive. Um, so we started early 1983, we would have done it, um, because we at the end of the, that year, once we got all the paperwork together, that's when we actually established the union. Um, so I think we'd been... Me and my mate, Risby, had been on um, tour with UCL, along with um, some of the, the Loughborough girls, the Keel, the Warwicks, Warwick, Warwick team and, and that's where we got hold of them and said right we're having a meeting it's probably June I think and and um, sent out to whoever whoever we knew was was uh, was playing and, and we sat and started talking about what we needed to do and what were in, what was important to the game and she the well she worked for the sports council said well we need to set up a governing body and we'd written to the men's unions um and either hadn't got a reply or had a reply that said oh get on with it you know yourselves Mm. were not interested um and so we did uh and that's where people like I think Anne McMahon helped with the 
writing up contracts and oh yeah McMahon, yeah yeah Sheila Welsh um obviously worked for sports council so got us a, a template of what we needed to do and we spent some time doing that and then established the the actual sort of organization and that first sort of board committee um at the end of the year and I missed I miss the meeting and I rang up, I remember I rang up the next day, I was at the bottom of the street with some 2p coins in the phone box because I was still up at Leeds uh, and they'd had the meeting in London and I couldn't make it. So I was ringing up going, right, um, I said I'd do a job, you know, what have you got me down to do? And um, they said, well, everything's set up, the meeting went really well and you're the new secretary. And I went, oh gosh, I can't. I'm not very good at shorthand or anything like that. They went, no, you're the secretary, which is like the chairperson. And I was like, oh, no. So I think the the, the sort of moral of that story is don't ever miss a meeting. You get given the top job in absentia. Um, so, so, yes, so that was that was the start of the, the, the WRFU at the time, because obviously we were for sort of for the whole of the of, of, of UK. And the double, that's what I was just going to say. That that's that's just an incredible story. I mean, there's so many stories out there in women's rugby that are historically that just haven't been told and are not out there. Yeah. You know, that first meeting that just must have been amazing. And so the WRFU, that's right, yeah, yeah that was in yeah. so all all because there wasn't Wales, England, Ireland. So there was none oh, of no. none of those other home nations for all our listeners out there. This was the very first board of uh, of, of rugby in Britain, and of yeah. which of which you were chair. And secretary, yeah. and you know, you have yeah. the top job having not been yes. in the meeting. So get yourselves those meeting girls. Oh, <laughs> um, wait, you know, so that's just incredible. And you know, you did touch on and you mentioned that you'd written to some of the unions. And I know for the first World Cup, there's some great stories out there as well about how, um, you yes. know, women's rugby just wasn't acknowledged by the men's unions. And it was like, you know, so women had to go and create their own unions for it to become recognized and successful. So, you know, when did the RFU come on board, you know, and, and kind of, Obviously, we had this split because Wales formed their separate union as well. There was a Great Britain side as well in between all this. So, what, you know, yeah. what, what, tell us a little so, bit. Of- so I guess the, the thing to remember is, although officially and governance wise, we weren't part of RF, the RFUs as such, there was yeah. a whole load of people who did help us. Um, yeah. so we can't forget that in terms of uh, not the top level, but throughout yeah. the game in terms of in terms of um, people like Don Rutherford and Alan Black and yeah. uh, some of the guys who work for, um, and, and, and David Shaw, uh, and they'll be the same in, in Wales as well, who mm. on the ground would support. And actually, where did we get our referees from? We got them from the local societies. Yeah. Uh, which pitches yeah. did we use? We worked, with, we worked with the clubs and we, would, we, we were part of a club, let's say, but we were separate in terms of government. The governance was a bit of a mess, if you think about it really and even within back up to IRB there was always issues around well actually who actually governs the women's game here mm. it's not part of the men's structure uh, and that's when I'm saying here I'm told you know so um, UK GB um, so so there was that and I guess there was something around um, finding our own way in a lot of ways, made us stronger. So by the time we did integrate, which I think was around 2012, we'd had those conversations on and off for years. Um, it it was never quite the right time. Um, and we were doing, in a lot of ways, quite especially later on, we were doing quite well on our own with our with our own funding from Sport England, from Lottery, etc. And and 
so so for me if I'm speaking now about what became the the RFUW and then the RFU mm. um that that suited us and it suited the guys for a little while and also they were going through the whole issue of professionalism and having yeah, to deal with course. that so yeah so in, in some ways we had a really good sort of collaborative relationships in a, in a lot of ways that was helping grow our game and we were getting significant funding and support from other bodies that maybe we wouldn't, wouldn't have got if we were part of the RFU um, so for us when we did join it was the right time and from a, posi- a real position of strength and mm, yeah probably seen some other unions whereby you know it wasn't done in this necessarily in the same way where when they did sort of integrate amalgamate or get taken over I'm not sure that they had the same sort of um I guess control power influence that, that allowed the, the women's game to grow and flourish for for a while I think it took a while for some unions to really get to grips with growing the women's game and mm. seeing the potential in it yeah I, sorry I'll just, I can see um you. yeah I remember that well actually Carol because I was working at the time for the RFUW because you'd had that funding for the um club coach coordinators this is a long long time ago yes, yes. and I remember the integration actually and it was quite an excite like like you say it was more that actually the timing worked well for both sides because up until that point yeah you were quite you know the RFUW was doing doing really well but then when you guys joined up together again it, it was really exciting and so, for someone like myself who was so young at the yeah. time I say young then all I right Alex don't rub it in <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was just amazing do you know what I mean like I saw a little bit of it going on obviously I you know I only knew what I knew from the outside really it was a really exciting time and I honestly now reflect on anything how privileged I was to even like hear little bits of the kind of integration going on so it was a really exciting time for the game definitely like from my point of view anyway yeah yeah. yes absolutely and I think that was that you know and then I guess what's happened is that 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 the key thing is is then that the organization really takes it on and, and does integrate everything so the plans Wibby's plans just automatically get consumed within the plans for the game. Um, and but it, it needs to be it needs to be managed and a lot of integration. I've seen it across a lot of different sports. Um, there's there's a case for segregated bits within an organization for a while if you need the women to stand alone in order to be seen and have their own committees and, and structures. Yeah. Um, but we went for the complete complete integration across all functions and for me that is the longer term thing but in order to do that you need some advocates you need people within the system uh, Mm. in those positions to really understand the needs of the women's game and also you know for it to be there as part of their targets their KPIs um, their understanding of how to do it because it's not always the same and there's different things you need to do in order to have equality Um, so that's it, it's shifting that culture to really understand that um, that it becomes part of rugby and it's it's some of the things you can do together, some of the things have to be slightly separate, but you, there's a load of economies of scale to be had that it's not just another doubling up of work. 
especially at the, at the lower end of the game or yeah, the yeah. You know, participation level. Um, and then you split when you need to split in terms of uh, performance, yeah. uh, talent ID. But there's still a lot of synergy across mm. that you can work on. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so I think that's, you know, and to see the potential, this is the growth area. You know, this was the growth area for, for rugby for the last 10, 15 years um, in terms of in terms of thinking about numbers of, of people playing and, and certainly across football and rugby, the, the men's game and the participation, they're just dropping. Yeah, absolutely. Can I take you back a little bit before we keep going forward? Because we've moved off sure. on a bit of a track, yeah. but I wanted to ask you really to see if you've got any... Um, funny stories or great memories around the time so you were you were captain of GB when they played France which Bird was also involved with you in and then you were captain of England when you played Wales when you played against Bird um, <laughs> and I just wondered if you had any like great memories of those you know those particular moments um, in the women's game and any funny yeah. stories on Bird as well would be great. Oh, great. Keep them clean now-ish. <laughs> I've, got a, I've, got a, yeah, I've got a few. Um, I guess uh, for me, the, the GB game was amazing. I mean, that, I just remember the committee meeting that we had when we were talking about, uh, probably in 1985, we were talking about, should we have our first international? Should we not? We hear the French have played the Dutch and Italy are playing. Oh, should we do it? Is it too soon for the game? Um, and and I think you know in the end we you know sort of half an hour later we, we went no let's let's do it let's let's just do it let's get on with it because it will drive the growth of the game um, and so we spent half an hour making a decision then spent the next lot of the meeting deciding what the jersey would look like <laughs> so the reason <laughs> the reason it looks like what it what it did is because I'm rugby league background so it looks like a rugby league shirt that first GB shirt so. So we spent, and, and then also you've got to remember that not only were we playing, I was, I was, so when were we, 86. So I was still chair, I was still chair, still secretary. Um, so as well as trying to, to trial for the team, we were setting up the trials and getting sort of selectors and coaches. And this is where I'm talking about, you know, the men's game helping support where the coaches, we got nominated a couple of really great coaches and, um, Stefan Chirpak, who, who sadly is no longer with us, uh, was our coach. And, and I can't remember his name, Bird, I don't know whether you do, but this big hulking prop from Cornwall called Bob. Bob. Who, yeah, Bob. Yes, yeah, I know him as Bob. Who helped, who helped train us as well. So, so we were setting up the trials and then, you know, we were organising the French coming over. So on the, on the, the night before the game, we all had to go to London because we were playing at, at Richmond before the men's county championship final, I think. So we were playing at 12 o'clock. So on, I think the night before the game, the, day, the, the night before the game, we trained at Roslyn Park and we were outside training. Then suddenly a guy came out from the clubhouse and went, anybody called Carol Isherwood out here? And so I went inside and I don't really remember, Bird, but um, Fiona Barnett had been asked to go and meet the French. Yes, uh, and off she'd gone to Heathrow yes. to meet the So I'm picking up the phone call, and it's it's Fiona, obviously with another bunch of two peas, um, going, Carol, I'm here at Heathrow. Um, the French are at Gatwick. <laughs> <laughs> so we were like, oh no! I went, oh, just get a, get a cab and get across. And remember, we're all paying for this. Nobody, you know, we didn't really have the money. We had a little bit of money for, you know, we had UCL Union who Debs Debs Griffins. 
partner husband worked at so we managed to get us a good rate at the, at the halls of halls of residence where they were going to stay um and so she head off to, to Gatwick and when she met the French they went where is where's your coach where's the coach for us we thought we can't afford a coach we didn't know we had to do that we didn't know we had to, we didn't know we had to get a coach or anything so she just said, oh, sorry, the, the coach was at Heathrow. It's had to go. So she had to buy like 30, 30 tube tickets to get them into London. And, uh, and then we, yeah, and so that was, you know, so we were all trying to do the things and trying to, but we didn't know the protocols. We didn't know how it was supposed to work. Um, the French had only confirmed probably a week or two before. Um, so we were, we were just desperately managing that. But in actual fact, it was the most, it was a brilliant game. It was a great yeah. showcase for our first ever game. And, and we lost narrowly, which was a, was, which was an excellent performance. So, so that was, that was, there were some, some great stories. I think she saw them off as well, Fiona, and, and she was waving, waving them off at the train station whilst they got the, the tube off to, um, off to Gatwick and then put her hands in a pocket and, and pull them out and realised she had all their tube tickets in her hand. <laughs> So, anyway, so that's we've got more professional since then, and it wasn't yeah. feel. But anyway, so that and then I think uh, Pontypool. Obviously, we decided it would. You know, it was we had enough players and enough teams to have an England Wales game, so we set that up and held that down down in Wales. And and again, you know, we stayed at Chepstow Youth Hostel for two years running. Um, so I had to order the you know the the backs to wash up. And um, on, on the evening, the forwards to wash up the next day. They tell stories about having to clean the toilets, but I never made them do that. So I think that I think that was GB. A, we had to do that for GB. We probably did. We probably yeah. did. Yes. Wow. Yeah. But but what's incredible about that? Sorry, Elsie, come in here. But right. just what's incredible is you know you 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 were a player. You're up for selection. You know you were organising all that stuff as well. <laughs> Barn Barn is Fiona Barnett, one of my great friends. You know. She was doing all that meeting and greeting. You had to rely on, on, you know, on what, you know, the great women that we had there to do that. And like you said, the support as well from those guys, you know, we couldn't have done it. We couldn't have hosed it. Richmond Rugby Club as well. It was just, yeah. it was just phenomenal days. And, you know, without you guys and without that founding, you know, women's rugby wouldn't have started. So, yeah. you know, there's just some incredible stories there. Sorry, I'll yeah. see you. And, and I, think that's, I, think, I think a lot of, a lot of, there was so many people involved in organising that, you know, so friends and and players and other people involved just just making it happen and that was it for me is if you want to play you make it happen if you want something you better do something about it because nobody's going to give it to you on a plate you know and, and actually you value it more if you yeah. if you're putting stuff into it as well do you not 100%. think that that's kind of the the beauty of rugby and we're trying to keep that even now like you say it's a little bit more professional now but however even you know in our league our girls still have to do stuff because actually it's your club, it's your team. And I think that's a real key value of rugby. Even if it yeah. is professional, it's okay to, like you say, have to wash up maybe, you know, is that a bad thing? I don't think so. It's just a, no. a I think it's person, about responsibilities. It? It's about being part of something and, and you've got some responsibilities to the game and to what you're doing now and what's being done for you, but also what comes next. And I, and I yeah. think that's really, that's really recognisable in the women we're involved with and in particular with the women's coaches obviously with the with the high performance coaches work that I'm doing at the minute if you look at any of the aspirations that they've got it would they don't all say I want to be the head coach of here here and here they'd say I want to develop the game I want to get more coaches involved I want to give back and and that's just phenomenal and I think that's what we want from 
from from our women, but from the guys also. I think it yeah. really helps if you've if you're having to contribute in order to um, not be rewarded, but get something out of it as yeah. well. I think it helps you really value everything. And that, and that goes back to rugby's values as well, doesn't it? About you know respect and family, yeah. and integrity, yeah. and you know it's, it's it's what the game is, and those values are great. And you know, no more is it reflected than in the women's game, especially you know at this you know during this development phase and now. It's great. But I know, Al, you got you got another coach. Yeah, I'm sorry, I've got another side question. I'm just interested, really. <clears throat> um, so you had an England versus Wales game. When did you get the other nations? So when did like Scotland and Ireland? Was it just having to wait for them to build their player base up and and stuff like that? Well, it was it was quite interesting because. Um, when we talk about the WRFU and the RFUW, the Scottish went off on their own a bit earlier than when we dissolved the WRFU. So yeah. I think they'd done it in 93. I really can't remember when the first England-Scotland game was, but I think it was at Blackheath. Um, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, but I can't, remember, I can't remember the year. It might have been sort of just before they, they went off on their own or just after, but... Yeah. Um, You'll have, to, you'll have to look in the history books for that. Uh, and also remembering that, so, so, so then, we, um, then we dissolved the WRFU because it was the right time and Wales was strong enough and you've got enough people and also enough people to run the organisation. Um, so we did that and, and I guess people have to remember that obviously the WRFU ran the first Women's Rugby World Cup in 91. Um, and you know Deb, Sue, Mary, and Alice were the were the people on that event organising committee. I was busy then dealing again with the England team because by then I'd been I tried to leave the committee and the and set, step down as secretary and they immediately appointed me as a sort of coaching development officer or technical director. So yeah. straight back in, um, <laughs> but doing something really specific around that sort of technical side of the game, which was probably my 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 strength in a way. Um, so, you know, the 1991 World Cup was, was us doing that and down in Cardiff again with a lot of support from um, different people within the men's game, but also the city council, et cetera. Uh, and then when the, the next one should have been held in Holland uh, and there was a few problems with that with IRB at the time and, 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 and Holland and... And at the last minute, the Scottish women stepped in and ran a fantastic World Cup in 1994. Um, so again, you want something to happen, you make it happen, and they, they did it in six months. So yeah. you know, right. and again, another step up in terms of quality and performance. So, um, so yeah. Just um, going back to that t uh, time period where you mentioned about. Um, moving into that kind of technical director role, <clears throat> that was a voluntary role. Um, at the time, were you having to, you were having to work as well? Like, what did you do, and how did you manage that that time? Because obviously, like you've just explained, you're having to do it all. You know, yeah. these amazing women, you have to do it all yourselves. Well, how did you manage that? Well, for the first two, three and a half years, um, for the first two years, I made pizzas and burgers in a Leeds takeaway joint. Um, so I, <laughs> I didn't know that ish. <laughs> Tony's wow. pizza in in in, uh, in the student district. Yeah, so I, I when I finished university, I I had a year out because I was going to join the police, but then my eyesight was bad, and 
you know, I wasn't probably quite tall enough and they'd started paying more, so I couldn't get in. So I had a year out, then did a teaching degree. And then I decided I didn't want to go into formal education. I really wanted to do sort of community um, education through community and sport. Um, but I couldn't get a job in that initially. And, and in actual fact, I've been working um, in a take in a takeaway and in pubs during my year out and during when I was doing my teaching certificate stuff. So I I just stayed on as as the manager of this of this pizza place in Leeds and made made pizzas whilst I helped set up the women's uh, helped set up and develop the women the women's union. And then after that, when I moved down to London, I couldn't get the job in community sport I wanted. So um, Debs's husband Chris, who worked at UCL Union, got me a got me a job in the in the um, in the student cafeteria. So I was making food for for 100, 200 students at, at lunchtime, whilst again, you know, playing and, and doing rugby. But eventually I got a, I got the job I, I really wanted, which was the first part of what was known as the action sports schemes. Um, yeah. And so I am in history books um, around that um, and got a job with Westminster City Council on an, one of their estates. Um, and, and then when that scheme sort of uh, was stopped the Westminster City Council took on a small um, sports development team and I became head of that sports development team so we started off with four uh, members of staff doing community sport and by the time I left um, I was all I was up to about 35 members of staff we had a an old youth centre that we'd 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 redone through lottery funding which was uh, still there, Morbley Sports and Education Centre, and we ran the Duke of Edinburgh Award Scheme, and we did loads of sports events. So I spent ten years with Westminster City Council doing what brilliant, brilliant outreach work with the people you should be working with to try and get more people involved in sport. So, so that was as I say. So that uh, that that was a real sort of allowed me to work flexibly to be able to then be involved in rugby and, and and the sort of crossovers between sports development, writing, sports, sports plans, etc. Uh, in terms of um, rugby as well as as Westminster City Council, we're all we're all sort of um, doing the same sort of transferable skills. So that's wow. probably a long-winded way around say from pizzas to Westminster <laughs> to um, you know getting more people involved in sports so for me that's that's a massive passion <clears throat> and um during that period as well I, I presume that's when you also did your level three you were the first female to do the level three yes I was during still, that period. At, still, at, still at Westminster yes so. can you remember what that was like can you remember how being the, one of the first females to do it what it was like on that course yeah it was great so there was I think there was 98 of us nationally so they split it into two courses um god where was it Egham Egham College or somewhere somewhere like that um anyway um I I really enjoyed it they what they did was they ran a first introductory weekend and then they decided whereabouts people were in the system and, and their evolution to be able to uh move it forward so um the course was great because we got put into a small group and I was with four guys and um I, I didn't really get any sort of negativity from, from anybody, but I, I guess there will have been some people on that course, some of the guys who, who didn't think you should be there, but not, nothing that was ever ever came out. And also the, the people who ran it did a, did a great job with it. 
Um, but I remember the four guys at the end of the, the weekend said, well, we've been really lucky because we've had a completely different perspective because we've had Carol with us. So that was Brilliant. that's one yeah. thing that sticks in my mind. Um, and yeah. also the, one of the one of the guys on the course um, who was who was running our group, uh, one of the tutors, sat me down on the Saturday night and plied me with drink. Um, <laughs> And because he wanted to talk to me because he said, I'm used to guys, I'm used to working with guys and, and I can tell straight away about, you know, how they work and what they can do. He said, but I'm not sure about you. And, and the next day I said, are you sure about me after those six pints the night before? Um, so, so yes, it was, um, it was good. And then, and then from that with the two different courses, I was one of the ones fast tracked to, to move through um, and get straight away to be seen on the practical side of, of the course so yeah is there yeah. any anything you would say to any uh women out there that want to you know start getting their coaching badges but maybe they're a little bit apprehensive like you like you've just said about being the only woman in a group like is there anything you could say to encourage them to to go just go do it um i think there's there's two things around that one is to have the confidence and not not to be afraid because the what I've found generally is that the women are a bit apprehensive about it, but they always know more than they think they know. Um, and don't think there's some sort of secret um, to it. You don't, you don't go on a course and get given a magic, you know, sentence of how it all yeah. works. Um, but I also think that um, it's, you know, the, the way courses are run um, is down to the, the tutors and the educators. So I think it's really important that, um, in order to get over that that barrier that women may feel about being confident around it is is to ensure that there's other women on that course and there's female coach educators so they're not the only one in the room who who looks different um i think i think it's a it's a it's a two way process but but for women you know i i guess i was playing and i was playing at a high level i was confident about coaching because i'd done quite a lot with westminster and and that leadership stuff so I just didn't think about it. I thought well, I'm, I'm just I'm just going doing this because I you know I want I want to learn more. So I think yeah. that's the thing is is just brave it and walk in walk through the door, uh, and there'll be people that will be on side. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think I definitely think that attitude of having actually I I know more than I I know more than I think I know. So they're going to learn something as well. Like definitely that's a good way of approaching it, and that gives you a bit of confidence as well. Then yes. Yeah, uh, it's not a one-way process. It's always a two-way process. Education, like yeah, you know, in terms of whether you're the educator or the or the coach on the program, you're both learning from that relationship. Yeah, I think I think it's great as well that you know that story you told about um the guy wanting to sit down and chat to you as well to get that different perspective. You know, what a yeah. forward-thinking guy. And you know, yeah. and and my experience as well of being involved on coaching courses. You know, when I I was the only female like you is exactly that. You've got to be brave and just just get out there and actually. Lots of females know lots of males as well. You know, I think yeah. females, you know, just automatically just think, oh God, maybe I don't know as much. But actually, once you get chatting, once you get talking, and that conversation happens, you realise actually I do, I do know what I'm on about. And you know that only comes from braving it to doing it. Nish, you've certainly led the way in doing that. Um, I just want to explore a little. There's so much to chat to you about in terms of the coaching. I know we're going to come on to that in a minute in terms of what you're involved with at the moment and what you've set up in, with World Rugby for high performance coaching. But um, take us back to like the, the period of time when you were a performance director for the RFUW. Um, kind of what what changes 
or what did you implement there and what, what were you kind of most proud of achieving in that role when you were performance director? Yeah, I guess uh, we were we were fortunate that we could once lottery funding got opened up for revenue projects as well as capital projects, which are around buildings. So we could use it for people and programs. Uh, we were able to apply for that. And, and I was in a position to um, having spent having written all the other plans we'd ever had for RFUW, WRFU um, and getting some of that funding from them for um, for the different elements we wanted to we wanted to do um, going in and then began being able to to professionalize with a with a with a large p what had always been a professional operation I think with England I think it had or already been a good settlement the players for me were always professional with a with a small p um, so I think that was a great base to build upon uh, what it did allow us to do. Uh, uh, and again, we only initially got six months of funding. So I left my job at uh, at, um, at Westminster, applied for the for the for the rugby for the uh, performance director job, and it was all always only ever going to be on an interim basis. Uh, so we, you know, we we got on, we got a certain amount of money, and we're able to very quickly um, make a difference, considering the World Cup was coming up in five months. Um, the first Women's World Cup. No, this was 98. Oh, 98, sorry. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. yeah. So, so I started just at the at the end of, of 97, beginning of 98. Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, <laughs> and um, and what, what I did initially was I went to talk to, um, and, and this was a really good learning for me, is, is I took the time to go and talk to a few key people um, and ask them about what they'd what they what they'd done so oh gosh jeff cook was it jeff cook um i'm just forgetting names now um but um the, the person who'd been in charge of england in 1987 who then went to national coaching foundation if i've got his name wrong i feel terrible but anyway i went to talk to him about what he'd done and he, he sort of said you have a vision and then you you grow that with a number of a small number of close people and you get them to amplify the vision and, and you sell it to people and you, and you take it forward. And some of the other people I went to speak to were, were people like uh, Stuart Lancaster, who was working at, at Leeds, who was always, always open to just chat about what they were doing. And, and Stuart was, a, was always a brilliant supporter of the game and was the first to open up where we wanted to put women in with their academies to just train strength and conditioning, then do sort of schools of rugby stuff. It was all, always well, well open to it. So... Um, so I talked to him and then the other person I went to see was um, oh, fitness guy. God, honestly, what is wrong with me and my, and my, my remembrances of people's names come back to me in a minute. But anyway, through, through the guy who was doing the fitness for the England squad, he mentioned that, um, that Rex Hazeldean was just retiring and then he might be interested in a part-time role. So, Managed to persuade him to come on board, which for me, I was like, oh, my goodness, it's Rex Hazeldean. The amazing Rex um, Hazeldean. The amazing yeah. Rex. So, you know, we had we had some great people involved. And the other person was somebody put me on to, to Kirsten, who was um, uh, an ex-Olympic rower, Canadian, and she came in as our sports psych person. So 
right from the start, we we had some we had some great people. We had some some coaches, um, Eric and Steve, and Steve had been involved for a while with the squad um, as as the coaches. So uh, we were able to put quite a a number of things into place to then have. Um, a pretty good performance at the World Cup, but nobody was going to be on the same level as New Zealand, who came out of nowhere. Well, we sort of knew what we were going to face with the year before when we'd gone to New Zealand and got got whipped by them. Um, but to at least start to know we we could we could compete with them for the first thirty minutes of the game in the semi-finals, but after that, we needed to be fitter and better at everything we did. So, so I think that was the start of that, and then from then on, everything I did and what I'm most proud of is probably developing a culture of um, of performance standards of, of and and developing that with the team, with everybody who worked within it. For me, workforce development is one of the most crucial things. So, having the culture and having the workforce really buying in and involved and owning what you're doing. Um, so, and I guess I didn't wouldn't have even called it culture development then. I didn't know as much about it as I do now. But for me, taking that group of people with me um, to really develop the game um, and develop our systems and structures. So looking all the way from, from talent ID to talent development, to the structure of the squads, to the support services, to the training and competition programs so that everything we did that that we reviewed regularly so it's always continuous improvement and always is it going to be enough to beat the best so is it going to be good enough to beat New Zealand okay we've just won that game would it beat New Zealand and will it beat New Zealand in where they're going to be in two years time so for me there was always always that stuff and one of the one of the best stories for me um talking about what we did and the plans we had and how we drove that development. Um, we had to go back to Sport England, UK Sport for the lottery funding after the sort of six months were up. And uh, so I had to write the review and the new four-year plan, as to what we would do and how we would do it. And remember, we'd come third. Um, so, you know, as far as they was concerned, that wasn't really good enough. So how we were going to re- how we were going to rectify that? And one of the one of the best quotes I had, and which I used on the review report, so I had a picture of the England squad, and across the front I had the quote from Paula George, from what she what they'd all fed back, and it said, "It this, the lottery funding is crucial. If we don't get it going forward, then the future will just be a battle for silver medals." And I didn't really, really need the rest of the report. It just told the story. So here's the detail, but that's the, that's the pitch. Okay. It was absolutely brilliant. I couldn't not use it. So for me, I've learned a lesson about always trying to sell a, you know, information in a real bite-sized way with pictures, with quotes, with, with a few stats, as well as the detail of, you know, that you've got to have in behind the, behind the story. Did you, um, you know, while you were like developing this and looking at pathways and talent ID, did you look, did you look to the men's game and think, <clears throat> you know, because obviously they had just gone through that transition of amateur to professional, and did you look at them and think, actually, we need to, we need to take this from them and do it, do the same, or actually, we need to go off on a different tangent? Uh, <laughs> mostly, um, I think I wanted to use the structures. But that they had within the men's game, but only if they were appropriate. Yeah. Um, and for me, they weren't always. No. Uh, so there were a lot of things that we did differently. I looked at uh, a lot of different sports. I looked at different countries. 
Uh, and if you remember as well, this is when all of our sports were getting lottery funding. So they're all looking at how to do things differently and better and talking to other performance directors um, and particularly somebody like Chris Spice, who came in um, as performance director for the guys who've been involved in, in Australian hockey uh, and, and in GB hockey. When, when he came into the R- RFU, um, he was a great person to, to chat to and, and to think about how, how to do things differently. So I think we always try to do things in, a, in the, the way that suited the women's game. But to yeah. try, but try not to reinvent the wheel and to use the structures that were there for us that would help us uh, meet our targets and you know grow the game, grow the standards, grow the workforce. Do you? Um, sorry, I've got another question on that. <laughs> do you think, um, or, or maybe I'm putting words into your mouth? Do you think like the bait, like having a the base of the game, the pathway, is that the route to keep in the top end? you know, getting us away from that second place? Like, do you think that, that that's kind of the key or? Um, you can't do anything without the base. They're both, um, you know, interdependent. Um, you, you know, the top end helps drive growth and helps yeah. drive standards. And, and the grassroots is the thing that holds it all up. I think there is, there's, for me, it's a bit of a misnomer when people say you've got a big, Big participation base, then you're going to have great performance. You don't. You can have a really flat pyramid. What you want is a really, you know, a strong base, but have have the tall pyramid by making sure that at every level you've got the appropriate competition, training, workforce, especially coaches, um, yeah. support services that that help at every level that make that pyramid a tall pyramid. So your top end is world class. Yeah. And, and I think so. So it's not always about growing the base in order to be a better performer. You've got to have the really good um, system structures, processes in place that help drive that that elite performance. Yeah. And, 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 no, that's fine. Action. And I think, no, it's a great question. And I think it's also being really clear, like you said, initially taking it back to what your vision is. And, and getting your team to support that vision and, and go forward. You know, the structures are crucial to every organisation, every governing body of sport, but it's like having that right team to drive that forward. Um, yeah. You know, and I think we can learn so much. And, and you know, we've been very lucky to talk to lots of different women on, on this pod and lots of lots of them, you know, say about the, the benefit and value. You've just touched on it then about other sports and what those other sports can bring in. Um you know, and and I don't know what what your finders on that. I mean, you know, are there because I know you worked in in the FA as well, but but just touching on what Chris did in hockey was it Chris you said Chris Spears? Chris. Yeah, Chris I mean, Chris, yeah. There's so much we can learn from other sports. You know, I, I I was listening to something that on baseball the other day and about the way they use their psychologist, and it was just a revelation for me. And I was thinking, wow, you know. But I mean, yeah. have you got any stories about that? Ace, just to, before we you know we go on the last um, couple of questions, but I'm not. Not sure I've got any stories. Let me think. I think the thing for me is, um, or learnings, I should say, you, not stories. You can, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can learn. You can learn lots from all over the place, whether it be business um, and or other sports, uh, other countries. And I think you've you've got to keep an open mind, and you've got to maybe also be proactive about learning um, and not. I think it's. This is where you fail. As soon as you sit still and think, yeah, we've reached the top, that's when you're in trouble. Um, 
So, the, and for me, that's the best coaches as well. The best coaches are the ones that can always learn something from somebody. Uh, so, for instance, the other day, um, one of my favourite coaches, um, one of the best coaches I've ever seen, Brian Ashton, was on a call with me because he's mentoring um, Amy on the internship programme. Um, and, and honestly, I had him, I had Robbo, I had um, a guy called Richard from New Zealand, and we were supposed to be on for 40 minutes, honestly, an hour and a half later, we're still talking about <laughs> And Brian was going, yes, but Carol, but the more, you know, I'm getting loads out of this. And you're like, that's why he's a brilliant coach. Yeah. That's why, you know, is, is you know, what he, what he did in terms of attack with England when he was with Clive was just phenomenal. He's still doing it and he's still asking questions and he's still trying to learn. So for me, it's, it's about that as a, as a leader and as a coach or, or whatever position you're in, how can you learn? And, and again, continuous improvement. How can you get better? What's working well? What's not working? What would be even better if? How can we make it even better? So for me, um, and I remember one of my staff at Westminster saw me interviewed for rugby once, and and this, and I think the interview was, well, why do you play flanker? And I think I said something like, well, it's the best position on the pitch because you've never done enough and you could always do more and I can crawl off and I think I, I could have done more. And he, he looked at me and he went, you're just like that. And I, and I thought, oh no, I must be awful. We just, but we I lost, that, sorry, it's we just lost you then. The sound went down. Oh, on, oh yeah. did you? So I was just saying about, you know, being a flanker and thinking that you've never done enough yeah. and always wanting to do more. And and the guy, one of the guys I worked with looked at me and went, you're just like that at work. <laughs> 100%. And, I, and I sort of said, oh no. And he said, you're always looking for how we can get better. And, and then I, I sort of realised a little bit that's, puts a lot on your staff team so you've got to make sure that you're not putting too much in terms of perfectionism on them and all that sort of stuff but still I think it's a good a good thing to think about but I think that in terms of you know what I saw a little bit in football fantastic sport the FA is great some wonderful people there great talented people but in some areas that I saw some of the places I worked in because it's so big they don't have to look outside do our own courses, we do our own this, we do our own that. And, you know, the better, obviously, top level, um, you know, they will be, they will be talking to other people, they will be looking at other sports. And I know Gareth Southgate does that, you know, he works with other top performance coaches, etc. However, in some areas, they don't look outside and I think they really lose that and you just get stuck in your bubble and you don't, you don't ever get any better because you just know what you know and what you were taught and what you've seen in the system. So I think it's really important to look outwards uh, and to explore other things. Wow, there's some great golden nuggets for any of our young coaches listening to this. And in fact, not just our young coaches, Algie and I have been making notes right this whole thing. If that does that, that definitely sums you up as a you know as a person and what I know of you. Um, you know, you're just always looking to improve and always looking to help and assist others. And and yeah, you know, phenomenal. Which which kind of leads us on to I know this this question. I know um, LJ and I are most probably fighting over asking this one, but at the moment, you know, you're a consultant at the moment for World Rugby and uh, you set up the women's high performance coaching program um which is which is just phenomenal and certainly I've learned so much um as a coach that's been involved in the game a long time and, and is forever learning and this has given me a different platform different eyesight you know to see so many females across the world um literally across the world in every corner of the world which is just phenomenal um you know 
kind of can you talk, tell us a little bit about that program how, how it was set up what, what you've achieved so far and I think we'll just bounce around some questions on that just generally sure. yeah sure so um so 2018 I decided I needed needed a break from um from working uh so I decided to to leave the FA and take a little bit of a break and and to look at moving back up back up north um and, and cashing in on my my house sale down there to have a property up here uh and before i even finished katie sadlier who's the general manager for women's rugby at world rugby said said to me oh so you're leaving the fa so i've got a project for you and i said no 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 i'm having a break i'm going to mexico for six weeks i'm I'm, I'm just chilling and uh she went oh it's um oh okay it's women into high performance coaching and i went oh damn you so I couldn't not do it. I said, I said, I said oh, okay, what is it? She said, I'd, I'd like you to do some research and write a report on the situation because I've done this audit and there were only, uh, there's only at the last Olymp- at the Olympics and at the last World Cup, there's only one female head coach and on, only three other co- female coaches involved in, um, in, in either of those. Um, so I really want to understand why and what we can do about it. So that was for me. Obviously, I couldn't turn I couldn't turn that project down. Um, right. And so uh, I did research and I put together the report that went to the Women's Advisory Committee. I went off to Mexico, still went, um, <laughs> and it went to the Women's Advisory Committee. And within that, there were a number of um, well, I guess there were some findings in terms of the research and the issues and the barriers uh, that are across all sports, not just rugby. Um, and also some recommendations. So having got back um, from my trip and moved north and everything, uh, Katie asked me if I would implement the recommendations. Um, so I'm now working with Katie and World Rugby team um, to really look at uh, implementing those recommendations and looking at meeting the aspirations that we've we've got for the game. I am... Um... I just want to jump in and say I'm really enjoying the process that we're going through. And also the other thing, like Bird said, you get into see women from all around the world. Like personally, I've been really lucky. I've, I've worked with some fantastic female coaches, which have given me, you know, confidence, you know, people like Bird, Susie, Giselle, all of them have given me so much confidence and to go and, you know, be, be a coach yeah. in my own right, as well as, you know, developing players and stuff like that. So I think, it's really, really exciting what you're doing, but there's definitely that. I think there's definitely something out there in coaching at the moment where we need to help women feel confident. And, you know, I've just gone through the process of having my own family and that was quite challenging because at the same time I went on my level four and there were things that I had to go through in that moment in my life where I was desperate to be on that level four. Cause I was like, this is my only opportunity whilst six month old son <laughs> having to lock myself away while I'm breastfeeding yep. and, but do you know what? Like, actually, the women around me gave me the confidence. Just go do it. I think, you know, it doesn't matter. I think this is a really the yes. right time for you. So I'm personally, I'm loving, loving what we're on right now. And I think we have to shout about the females in the game doing a great job at coaching to get yeah. more women to do it um, yeah. at all levels. And I think that's I think that's right. So if I'm looking back at the, the barriers that, that we found and um, there's no one thing. There's no one thing you can point to and say, well, well, that's what it is. Um, and that's the big learning is, is that, that the barriers are all interlinked. And 
you need to we need to address all of them. The the way we've probably done it in sport for the last thirty years um, has been to really look at women's confidence and competence, and we've we've sort of ignored the fact the issues are structural, yeah. uh, cultural, and yeah. um, there's there's a bunch of unconscious, sometimes conscious biases that tell against women getting certain roles. So you have to address all of them together. And one of the things when I was packing my house up, um, I found all my old coaching files from like the 1980s from the National Coaching Foundation. And uh, a great friend and colleague of mine, um, Anita White, um, who's who's done masses in the area of women, women in sport. Um, she's, I think uh, she's doctor then, now she's a professor. So she'd written an article, this was 1987, I found it, and it was about women in coaching or the lack of, and every single thing 30 odd years later was the same. Yeah. And in fact, exacerbated by the fact that there are no paid roles within women's sport, if you think about, the well, Olympic sports, but particularly the, the female sports that are traditional male games, um, where those roles are paid and because they're there and they're paid and they're an option now, the guys come in and, and, and get awarded those roles. And fair enough, they may be the right, the right people and it's, it's, a, it's a pathway now for them. However, um, it, it ignores some of the great strengths that women have and um, we need to do something about the structures and systems and recruitment processes in order to make sure women are are involved and, and get those roles. So a lot of the work I've been doing is around still uh, about women's confidence and competence so that you can put yourself forward. But also when you do put yourselves forward, the, the way things work, give you an equal chance, mm-hmm. either of getting a qualification or getting a job and particularly getting a, a role at a high level and a high performance level. So, so a lot of the interventions that we're putting, putting in place are trying to address all those things. So the, 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 the program you're talking about is the Cascade program, the yeah. Women's Cascade program that we've done off the back of the Women's High Performance Academy, uh, sorry, the Virtual High Performance Academy run by World Rugby, where we ran as a part of it was, was a women's, was a women's program. Um, so from that, we've developed uh, the cascade that would then involve more women, but also being led by the gold group coaches who were on that virtual academy programme last year, who are more than talented enough to facilitate the conversation. So it's allowed us to cascade, and that's why it's called the cascade programme, to cascade that information and the learning down to the next level of coaches for yourself, LJ on the database that we've got that we set up, I set up right from the start, but also we've opened that up to the region. So we initially set up a database, which is for the top sort of what we'd say 14, 16 unions to nominate the, the top level female coaches that, that you would consider high performance. Um, and some of those on the outskirts, especially around sevens, et cetera, weren't, weren't asked to put people forward. So now I'm working the, with the regions to make sure we're starting to capture those. Because I think the biggest thing coming out of it, and this is the same with the research, is you're not open to the same networks, informal networks that the guys have. And we've got to build the women's sort of social capital networks. And I think coming out of everything that everything that 
anybody says is actually it's just about it's the biggest gain is being part of something it's not just the technical tactical knowledge again it's actually being part of the network and now knowing that we're part of something and also you can ring somebody else up and have a chat about it yeah um so i think that's where we're starting to really two years on from when we start to get the growth and get the change and involve people and involve um other organizations in the setup and what do you um what do you think needs to happen in different countries different unions to support the program for for these females Um, yeah so one of the things I did um I wanted one of the key things for me is you know you always start with with having an idea of where you are in terms of an order of how many women are coaching how many are qualified um how many deployed or where are they deployed so we don't always have that information but I I think for me what I wanted to do was was work with world rugby work with the unions to to start setting some targets because uh, if, if you if you often if you count it then people value it um but what we've got to make sure is that we count the things we value we value not value the things we can count does that make sense so you know just because you can count it doesn't make it the right target so i really wanted to work on active coaches not just around the qualification. Qualifications are an indicator, but we really want to know active coaches. So we're working on that at the minute with World Rugby to look at how we can how we can do that and how we can make sure we we capture those. So you start with the with the targets, but at the same time, what I didn't want to do was was for us to try and implement and drive targets with unions and with regions without giving them the support mm. guidance. So I wrote a toolkit, the Women Coaching Rugby Toolkit. Uh, that was launched around this time last year. And it's based, you know, even that was a, let's not reinvent the wheel. Use, I, I got the permission from, uh, it was an EU, the score program from the EU uh, done through the Erasmus Foundation that was written by UK Coaching. So I got permission to use theirs as the base and I wrote the toolkit from that and I rugbyfied it. Um, so we put case studies in from rugby. I amended it to make it um accessible and understandable for for rugby if you like Uh, and and within that it talks about how you may want to do things differently to try and get women into coaching and what you might have to do quite honestly you could do this with any workforce that you were targeting that was low participant Um, so you you could do it for referees you could do it for um, sort of administrators etc it's just thinking differently about how and what you do and certainly within that it's around how you get more women into coaching, how you ensure they go up the pathway themselves. So what's the what's the pathway for them? And you don't need a separate pathway for women, but you need to make sure that every area of the coaching pathway is open for women yeah. and what's getting in the way. So really understanding that. Um, and, you know, recognising that some of the issues that get in the way for women getting right to the top or maybe not being able to attend a course or the fact that they've got childcare responsibilities, they've got family yeah. responsibilities. There's other things that get, get in the way. There are, um, you know, I guess at that, that top level as, as well, trying to shift the idea that, um, oh, and often players will say this and, and international players, well, he's got to be better than her because he coaches at Super Rugby or in – yeah. At, a, at a premiership club uh, and she's only coaching women's game so what does that say about the value that even players place on the game so we've got to really look at what are the competences you need as a coach and 
you demonstrate them by being involved in, in this setup um, and, and this coaching and also, you know, how, what's expected of, of coaches as well. So there's a whole range of things that they've got to do, but a lot of that is addressed in the toolkit in terms of, you know, looking at recruitment practice for unions as well. So, so within that, um, hopefully the unions are, are start to, starting to look at it and think about, they don't have to do loads, but just have a plan, have a plan. Yeah. Where are you? Where do you want to be? And how are you going to get there? And here's the two or three key things we're doing. So for instance, on the back of the toolkit, um, and the work we've been doing, Mar- Martin Bassano, who's the, the um, sort of training education guy for South America, he set up a female coaches academy there. So he's sort of replicating what we're doing at international level. Uh, Rugby Africa are going to have their own internship programme based on what we're doing with the World Cup. They're going to be doing that with some of the coaches. And part of their process is being involved in, in the Cascade programme. So good practice can filter down and you can amend it to make it what you need it to be. So, so I guess, and then it's, it's the unions looking at what are they doing internally to really drive uh, women's involvement and to ensure that women are profiled and women coaches are profiled so that, you know, you can see it and you can be it. Yeah. I was going to say that Carol, actually the player, you know, obviously myself and Bird working with the, the girls in the Prem, there's been a big drive around that whole role model. If I can see it, I can be it. I, I still think that's the same for the female coach as well, especially even, like you say, to just change the perception of the athlete. You know, there's so many athletes that we've worked with, hey, Bird, that we were probably the first female they've ever been coached with. Yeah. Um, and hopefully it was a, a pleasant experience for, <laughs> experience for them. <laughs> But um, do you know what I mean? And that's quite, that's, that's a bit shocking, really, because even they're yeah. shocked to be coached by a woman. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and we know that also that there's research that says that you're more likely to go into coaching as a woman if you've been coached by a woman. Oh, wow. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, so, so there's yeah. that research there. The other thing is that the, the key four points I have, especially around the internship programme, is, is uh, okay, build competence. So competency of female coaches that builds confidence in them to then push themselves forward. So sometimes you might need women on the courses, but not for too long, please. Um, Because we miss too much if we don't, if we're not working with the guys, they know loads and, 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 you know, they can be our biggest advocates and and supporters. So competence, confidence, and then visibility. So being able to be seen. So the internship program for me helps show that. So we'll have 12 female coaches at the next world cup. Um, with those squads and working with them over the year, which will now be nearly two years, uh, and then credibility. So for me, all those things, you build visibility and credibility because they again get seen by players and by other coaches and by other staff and by other people coaching within those setups. And, and then we start to just grow that whole thing whereby you're just seen, which is what we all want, to normalise having women coaches so it's, you're just a coach yeah wow it's just incredible and uh you know you can tell just by the way you're speaking about it your enthusiasm you know <laughs> for it and how it's developing and building and, and for me personally like I said it's just been an absolute pleasure and the chat you know this morning I was on a group chat just before this you know involved with the cascade session you know and the knowledge and passion amongst those female coaches to share what they know with other females is just brilliant and and like you say you know the guys as well that you know, there is so much we can learn from them as well and it's you know it's important that 
that we share that knowledge and they can learn from us as well and you know it's, it's just great that interaction and um yeah. oh, so, the, so the main thing sorry i just say this one last yeah. thing really is is for me it's about it's always about diversity so whether that's gender race um socioeconomic whatever it is thinking you know that's where strengths comes from because if we're all the same we're coaching the same way in a team it's not yeah. it, it 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 gets sort of um it gets sort of not boring but it but it doesn't doesn't lead anywhere so you need some challenge you need some creativity you need to be different so the whole drive for me in in everything that we're doing is about diversity diverse coaching teams diverse boards diverse practice you know thinking about how we do it how we do it differently and lo- and that's that whole thing about collaboration and learning from how other people do it differently and you pick it and you go actually I love that bit or I'm going to do this a bit differently and see what 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 happens from from our players um so you know we want women coaching in men's squads we we want the diversity of of coaching panels to really give our players the the best experience they can have 100%. I, um, I'm just thinking as you're talking Carol just thinking how you say about you need to have a clear vision I can I- can see your clear vision I really like your um your toolkit idea you know where you said about um co- uh, competence confidence and then the visibility like that's such a clear idea and for me sitting here now reflecting as a coach like thinking of your journey being competent and then confident I'm probably now trying to be the visible part because I actually think I'm yeah. on that that journey I can see myself in your vision yeah. so cool. yeah it's really cool yeah Oh, it's been, it's been honestly, we've been chatting away here and I, I could still carry on chatting for the rest of the day. It's been absolutely brilliant. And and what, you know, like I say, it's just so exciting to see where this is going to go. And of course, I didn't even think about it, but you're right about those interns as well. They've got like an extra year now, haven't they, with the yeah. national squads, which is because sadly the Women's Cup, for the right reasons, got postponed yeah. to next year. Completely agree with that. Um, you know, and, and that, that's amazing for those interns as well. What a fantastic, yeah. phenomenal yeah. opportunity. 12 female coaches. Wow. It's going to be amazing. But yeah. um, it's... Thank you so much. We've it's been absolutely brilliant, and and thank you for everything you're doing and continue to do for women's rugby. Um, it's just it's just amazing, and and you did deserve that holiday, that little break in Mexico. But I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad we got you back. I'm glad we've got you back in the game. Um, God, so exciting talking to you. But um, we normally like well, finishing with a little quick fire round as well. So we'll come. We're going to come on to that. Okay. Round. But yeah, I've tried to come say up thank you. Thank you for everything you you guys do. Uh, come on, Bird, you've been along as long as I have, and the amount of stuff you've done is is quite phenomenal as well. So, you know, we should all give ourselves a pat on the back. So typical-ish, typical-ish, look, deflecting it away from her. <laughs> <laughs> we've got youngsters like LJ now to take it forward when I... Come on, LJ. She's in her own six, yeah. A fantastic coach to the making there, great, great people to learn from, so don't worry, I'm going to do my best, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um I've tried to come up with some you know post-covid lockdown uh would you rather so let's see let's see where we go with it um (laughs) so basically just shout out which one you would rather do um so to start with would you rather have an easter egg hunt or a hot cross bun and a tea hunt (laughs) easter egg hunt I'm not a big chocolate fiend but um I think I think Easter egg hunt with with my great nephews oh. and nieces. Oh, would, lovely! Yeah, I'm up for that definitely. Bit of excitement. Get those eggs in the basket. 
Okay, my next one is um, DIY or gardening. This is probably one oh. that you'd rather not do oh. because you've been DIY. doing DIY. Honestly, everything on my balcony <laughs> that my sister planted last year is dead, and I'm getting a reminder <laughs> the next few weeks to redo them. Yeah. Well, yeah. mine, on the other hand, would be gardening. I do love a plant. Yeah. I do like growing things. So oh, I'm a gardener. Good. Here we are. Deb's Griffin yeah. bought me two indestructible plants, host plants, and they're still alive. <laughs> they're still alive, honestly. She did a great <laughs> job. Yeah. Oh, I love it now. Um, my next one is a theatre trip or a cinema trip. Oh, no, I like both, but probably theatre. Yeah. I do, I do both loads. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy um, both. A beach holiday or a ski holiday? Beach. Never did skiing because I was always playing rugby and then by the time I was free to go and ski, my knee was stuffed. Yeah. <laughs> At the moment, I could do the beach holiday, so I'm going to go with Johnish yeah. and go on a beach holiday. Yeah. Okay. Um, and would you rather have uh, a sit in a coffee shop, catch up with your mates, or a beer garden, catch up with your mates? Oh, oh beer garden. Beer garden. Apart from the Easter egg hunt with the great, great nephews and nieces, it's sitting in a pub with some mates with a beer. Yeah. yeah. 100% with this on that. Yeah. Get the beers in. Oh, well, thanks a million, um, guys. And um, we'll try and get that women's, the, the toolkit up. And if anybody, our listeners out there haven't seen it, you know, do do take go on to World Rugby, have a look at that women's uh, rugby toolkit. And uh, we'll make sure we get the link to that up as well. Um, well, Ish, like I say, thanks thanks a million for all your time this morning. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Um, and uh, this is it, guys, uh, for today. Um, and if you want to hear more, please visit rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the podcast button to visit the women's section. Um, have a great and safe Easter, everybody. I do hope you all get out there and find those eggs um, and enjoy eating them. And uh, hopefully we'll be in that beer garden soon, eh? Because uh, no. lockdown, lockdown's on its way out. Hurrah! <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you both. Enjoy, enjoy yourselves, guys, and we'll speak to you all again soon. Thanks a million, Ish. Mm-hmm.